Nothing gets by you, does it, Chuck? Nope. Yeah, I can count with my shoes on. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 139 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hello. Andrew Madsen. Hi, from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A quick shout out for Freelance Remote Conf coming up in February and iOS Remote Conf coming up in April. So if you're looking for some conferences you don't have to drop the big bucks to travel to, then those are options. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that's Josh Brown. Hello from Indianapolis. We brought you on today to talk about parsing JSON and Swift. Do you want to do you want to give a brief intro and then talk briefly about that and the book and what's going on there? Sure. Yeah. So uh, parsing JSON and Swift is not as easy, I think, as maybe it should be. And I learned this the hard way uh, by doing it. And I found out Swift is a great language and it's easy to use and learn. And Apple claims that it, you know, these things. But then Parsing JSON is not so simple, it's not so easy, and it's not so intuitive. And I think the the main issue here is that Swift is really strict about types and nil and things like that, and JSON is not. So I've written a few articles, but I wanted to write a book to help people get past these stumbling blocks that Swift seems to put in your way when you're trying to parse JSON. Makes sense to me. I mean, nobody, and by nobody, I mean everybody is using JSON, so... Yeah, exactly. So you've written a whole book about this. And if somebody came up to me and said, I'm going to write a whole book about parsing JSON and Swift, I'd say, well, well there's really enough there to write a whole book about. Um, <laughs> could you just go through and, 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 and actually I know, you know, having sort of hit into this problem myself, like basically everybody who's tried to do it in Swift, uh, I kind of know, but could you explain, you know, why this really is actually kind of a tricky problem in Swift? Yeah. So uh, like I touched on before, um, stri Swift is really strict about types and nil and things like that. And it really like it wants you to know beforehand if a type is going to be nil or not. And it wants to know exactly what the type is, if it's a string or an int or whatever. And so with JSON, you don't always know that. A lot of times in JSON, you may not get a value for a, a certain property or a property may be missing in the response and that's totally okay with JSON, but it's not okay with Swift. So you have to account for that in Swift and that's where it starts to get tricky. And I've seen a lot of code and written some code myself that you know is expecting a certain type and then suddenly it crashes. I'm expecting an integer. And because of the way I wrote the code in Swift, like, bam, the app crashes. And so uh, that's those are the sorts of things that I want to try to that I do tackle in the book, how to cast from one type to another, how to handle nil and missing data in the JSON, things like that. So what are the basic approaches you can take for handling the conversion from JSON to Swift? So 
there are a couple a couple different things. One, you can use the built-in NSJSON serialization. And what that does is it takes your JSON and turns it into dictionaries and the basic Swift types. So maybe arrays, um, strings, ints, things like that. And then there are a whole bunch of third-party frameworks out there that are designed to make it easier to do JSON parsing in Swift. Um, because usually using NSJSON serialization gets you part of the way there. It gets you to the dictionaries and things like that. But usually you want to have specific types like model objects that make it easier to program against in the rest of your code. And those frameworks out there are designed to sort of help with that. Okay, so the basic bare-bones approach, if you're just coding it, you get your NSJSON serialization that gives you a dictionary, and from there you just read values out of it, you know, right. strings yes, or ints. exactly. Mm-hmm. And that gets tedious pretty quick. Yes, and, it does. Yeah. And so you're saying, you know, if, if something's not like you expect it, like it's a string, but it's actually an int, you, you get crashes? You can, yeah. If you code it the right way, you can prevent those crashes. So sometimes people will try to, the term is called force cast or force unwrap an object. And if you try to force something to an integer that's actually a string, then yeah, it's going to crash. You can cast a different way, uh, like use the safe type cast operator. And if you do it that way, then your code doesn't crash. Um, but then you have to deal with the optional value that you get back. Okay. So the, the force cast, that's your exclamation point. That's the bang, right? Right. Exactly. And users, listeners, don't ever use that. Right. <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> if you, one takeaway from this podcast, if you're still using that, no. Right. Yeah. But there are other approaches. So you, you do an optional. So I expect this field to be a string, some type, or a string that I can convert to this model. And, you know, you do the, the optional cast. And if it works, great. What do you do if it if it doesn't work? Yeah, so um, this is one of the things that that is in the book as well. But basically, like it depends on whether that property you're trying to get from the JSON is critical to creating, say, the model object, or is it just a thing that would be nice to have. So, for example, we use the GitHub API in the book to parse um, repositories from the GitHub from GitHub. And so if I'm listing repositories, it's pretty important to me to get, for example, the name of the repository. So, you know, I write code that checks like to see, to make sure we got the name. And then if so, okay, we can create this repository model object. We can create an instance of it and work with it. If the name is missing, then it returns nil. And then just nothing is displayed for that repository. So versus, for example, then um, in the sample project, it also shows how to parse things that are less important, like, for example, a homepage. Maybe a project has a homepage somewhere else on the web. And if we get that, then great, we can, you know, display a link to that homepage so the user can tap in and go see the homepage. But if we don't, then it's okay. We can just not display that. That's sort of how we handle it. So basically, if it's required, then go ahead, like check for it and then create the object. And if it's optional, then do a check. But if it's not there, that's okay. Okay. This, this typically maps down to how you're actually defining your models. You know, right. A field could be an optional or right. could be exactly. you know, a strict type. Mm-hmm. Like if it's a user, maybe you need an ID. Maybe you don't need right. the pet's name or something like that. I right. don't know. Exactly. So that's the brute force approach. 
which I, I've tried doing and it was pretty painful. I went looking for a library pretty quickly. What are some of the libraries that people are using for parsing JSON? So the most popular one is Swifty JSON. And I actually, in, in the book, and most of the time when I'm writing uh, JSON parsing code in Swift, I don't use a third-party library. I'm okay with NSJSON serialization and transforming those into objects. I think frameworks like Swifty JSON are really helpful when, maybe when you get an array of data that isn't, um, that doesn't necessarily need to be an array. There's only one object in it. Um, it's a lot easier to use Swifty JSON to traverse the whole JSON structure and grab just the value you want. But like I said, in most cases, I found that NSJSON serialization is great. It does what I need it to. And something, a framework like Swifty JSON doesn't buy me a whole lot for, um, the cost of adding yet another third party framework to my app. Okay. So you're proposing you know, roll your own kind of mappers. Right, basically. Yep. So one issue that you've touched on is that if you're writing JSON parsing code in Swift, it's really easy to get it wrong in such a way that it will actually crash with bad data, you know, particularly if you're using, it's even worse if you're using forced unwrapping or um, forced casting. Uh, But but anyway, how can you, you know, you don't want to ship an app where you're kind of like, well, I don't know if data from the server changes, this thing might start crashing. So right. what are strategies to minimize that? So you can say with confidence that, you know, even if I get bad data, at least my app's going to do something reasonable with it. Right. So one big thing, I think, is to actually write unit tests for the code and to make sure that if you send bad data into your JSON parser, that your JSON parser can handle it, return something reasonable um, without crashing. The other thing that we already kind of touched on was not using force unwrapping, but instead using the optional unwrapping so that you're not causing it to crash. You actually spend a fair amount of time in, in the book about talking about uh, unit testing and how to how to write tests for your JSON parsing code. Right. And, and actually, I think you did a good job of just really, it's not even JSON parsing specific, but it's a pretty good um, little overview of how to do testing. Text specifically in, in Xcode, but I'm kind of curious what your motivation for spending so much time on that in the book is. Well, uh, to me, the problem um, that that solves is that I got unexpected data from the JSON backend and my app crashes. So, like, to me, writing tests helps me to prevent that from happening. So, if I write tests, and the tests pass, and they don't crash. And if I've tested thoroughly with bad data and unexpected data and things like that, then I feel a lot more confident in my app. I, I'm a big believer in unit testing in general, but um, specifically for JSON parsing, I think it's important because you can get data that you don't expect. I'm going to give a plus one for that. I've been working on a Swift app for over a year, and we did JSON parsing testing from the beginning, and it saved our tail so many times. It's definitely worth it, this this Mm -hmm. area of the code. So I have a question on how do you set up your tests? Are you having an actual JSON files and putting it into uh, the test project? Are you kind of mocking up dictionaries? What what approaches do you take? Yeah, the approach that I normally take is to create JSON files inside of the project and then load those in the test and then send 
that data into the JSON parser. I like this approach because it's easy to update. So if, for example, the API suddenly we've added a new property to it and we want to parse that in the app, we want to test that as well. It's easy to grab a response from the API with curl or with some other tool and then drop that um, JSON right into the test file to update that file. That's the approach that I like. It works really well for me. But using dictionaries makes sense too, in some cases, I think. Yeah, it's an interesting point to do actual live data using curl. I, we haven't been doing that, but that's a good approach. We generally just wrote our JSON files by hand based on what we needed. But we eventually got to the point where these files were so big and we had more weird cases we want to test, and we kind of went to the approach where we're starting to mock up the dictionaries just so we can right. you know, test all the cases without having all these these files sitting around. So it, it yeah. helped at one point when you want to get more granular. But we definitely mm-hmm. started having actual JSON files in the project and loading them up, which tested end-to-end, which is very right. valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the other the other thing I like about it is that it, it does test end-to-end it it exercises the NSJSON serialization or whatever third-party framework as well as how your code handles the output from that um, if you're you know, converting it into model objects and things like that. So, Okay, now I use Swifty JSON and I'm, I've been pretty happy with it and there hasn't been enough flux in the JSON handle in, in our APIs to really refactor and make it worth looking at something else. Are, are there other libraries people are using and liking? That's a good question. I think there are a few other libraries out there that are popular. I know that Swifty JSON is the number two most popular Swift repository on GitHub next to Alamo Fire. So I know lots of people are using Swifty JSON. I don't know much about the other ones, though. Okay. Yeah, there some of the earliest writing on people doing Swift apps was like, JSON parsing is hard. So everyone just went right to Swifty JSON. Right. I thought yeah. you were going to say they went right to XML. <laughs> <laughs> That's even worse, Chuck. Swifty XML is like 74th on Swift <laughs> Yeah. This yeah. way lies madness. But your point that JSON parsing is hard, I think that's another, maybe a misconception that people have. It is, it is still hard, but it's not as hard as it used to be. And so some of the outdated tutorials out there cover like, how to do JSON parsing in Swift. And like they used Swift 1.0 or 1.1 when unwrapping optionals was a lot more work and you ended up with this like pyramid of doom um, as it's known. And I think today, like people... Explain the pyramid of doom. What is that? Sure. So basically it's a series of uh, nested if statements. So for example, if I make a request to get some repositories, right? And uh, there's a repository and a repository has a user and that user has a name. And if I just want to get that username, I have to write a conditional statement to unwrap the repository. And then inside of that, like another nest, nested if statement, I have to write another conditional to get the user. And then inside of that, another conditional to get the name from the user. And so you can end up with this, these huge like nesting issues that people started calling the pyramid of doom and uh that's no longer necessary today as of like swift 1.2 you don't need to nest so much or at all even and i think so i think a lot of people like see these old swift tutorials about how to parse json and see the this crazy nesting and think like oh this is terrible i need a third party library when in reality 
today, parsing JSON and Swift is not that bad. It's not how it used to be. No, I agree with that. Yeah. With the pyramid of doom, you needed to nest every required field in your model. Right. So no matter how big it was, that you needed to do it for all of them. And it was pretty painful. But yep. yeah, without that, with a little better optional unwrapping that Swift gave us, yeah, the, the benefits are not as clear. I agree with that. Right. Yeah. So now you can do things like you can unwrap multiple optionals in a single if statement, or if you care about knowing which properties you were able to parse and which ones you weren't and printing out error messages or things like that, then you can use guard statements um, and do multiple guard statements, one for each property if you want. And then like with the guard statement approach, you may end up with just as many um, statements, but you get more detail and they're not nested like they used to have to be in old versions of Swift with if statements. So how does the guard differ from, say, the iflet we're used to doing? So it's it's basically the inverse of that. So you say, you know, guard let user equal and then grab your user. And then the guard has an else block with it, but only an else block. So if we're not able to get our user, then the else block is executed and maybe it prints an error message and then just returns from the method or returns nil or something like that. So then after that guard statement outside of that, but in the same method, then you can use the user without having to unwrap it or anything like that. It's already unwrapped and ready to go, ready to use. Okay, so even if it's out of the braces or where you'd think it would be out right. of the scope, you can right. still use it it's unwrapped. Yes, exactly. Okay. So what are your opinions on Guard? What I'm seeing from people blogging is that we're still trying to figure out what's the Swifty way of doing guards or iflets. People are having different opinions. What What do you think? Right. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I like to do is to return from methods early. And I think that guards allow you to do that very quickly. I can check if something is nil or not with a guard and immediately return from the method if it's nil and I didn't want it to be. I think they're useful. I think, sure, they can be overused like anything, but in general, I'm okay with them and I like them. Yeah, I like them too. And and the other, you know, the other nice thing about guard is that the, if you're if you're unwrapping an optional in particular, the unwrapped version of the optional is actually, you know, persists after the guard, assuming the guard does not execute its else. So unlike if let, you don't have to, you know, it's even better for preventing the pyramid of doom. Right, exactly. This is probably a silly question, but, you know, sometimes some apps have to not only decode JSON, but also encode it, turn model objects into JSON to send up to a web service. Mm -hmm. Is there any difficulty in doing that in Swift? I think probably... Not as much. I think it's basically if you can take your, say, your model object and turn it into a dictionary, um, then NSJSON serialization can handle it from there. So yeah, I don't, I don't think there's as much of an issue with that. And so that's not something that's covered in the book. Well, and of course, in that case, you're going from a, from a strongly typed world to, to a weakly typed world, which is right. much easier than the other way. Yeah, exactly. I'm kind of curious about your, about your book. 
to be honest, if I had been working, working on this problem and, and sort of, you know, had learned a lot about it and, and solved it for myself, I would not have made the logical leap to, Hey, I should write a book about all this. Right. Uh, and that's something you did. And I'm, I'm curious to know, is this something you've done before? Have you written other books that are similar that are kind of like the, this? I mean, it's kind of cool. It's like a concise little single subject book that goes really in depth on a particular topic. And, um, have you done that before? And, and what gave you the idea? So I co-authored a book before. It was back in the iOS 7 days. It's called um, Developing an iOS 7 Edge. And it was kind of about the new things that were in iOS 7. And I really enjoyed that and wanted to then write a book of my own at some point. And so this one came about because like from basically doing research and searching the internet and finding this question coming up again and again, like how do I parse JSON and Swift or why is it so hard to do this or things around, you know, uh, in that domain. And so with this book, like I wanted it to be very specific about doing that. Sure, I could have written about like how to fetch data from the network and how to write an entire like REST client or, or something like that. But I wanted this, like I said, to just be very specific on one topic and Hopefully it can be more helpful to people that way because, you know, if you're looking, if you're not sure how to parse JSON and Swift or how to write tests for that or things like that, you can come here and learn that specific information. You've done something I think is good, which is uh, even though there's, you know, information for anybody that has not done JSON parsing in Swift or anybody that has done it, and you know, doesn't know exactly how to how to do it the best way. You seem to have written the book with a real I don't know, like you're thinking about the fact that people who are reading this might might be quite new to Swift in general. So you right. go to pretty good lengths to explain, mm -hmm. you know, what, what if lets are, what optionals are in the first place. Right. And that was one of the things that was tricky for me about this because, uh, yeah, there's going to be, this could be useful to a wide range of developers, whether they're just getting started with Swift or whether they've done Swift for a while and just for whatever reason haven't worked with JSON yet. And so it, it was hard for me to know, like, how much do I explain things versus how, how many things do I just leave out and assume people know what optionals are or guard statements or things like that. But yeah, I mean, hopefully it's useful for a lot of people. And if... If somebody already knows what a guard statement is, they can skip over that paragraph and and be on their way. So, so one thing that I think trips up a lot of developers when we're actually getting the data by hand, you know, we we fire up NSJSON serialization, we do the JSON object with data, and some of the parameters people don't really know what to do, like like the reading options. Right? Um, does it does it matter? <clears throat> so that's something that usually I just pass in. Um, an empty array and don't worry about the options. Um, that's what it talks about in the book. It mentions that, yeah, you can specify options and you can go read about them in the docs, but those are something that I'm not sure I've ever used the options other than when I thought I had to specify options. <laughs> now that I know I can specify no options, I just do it that way and it works for me. So yeah, there may be some value value in those, but in general, I don't use them. And those are something where if you want to know about them, you need to read the docs. All right, fair enough. I have never really found any real reason to mess with them too hard, right. but you never know. Another thing I had a question on, more of a style question. So we talked about the Pyramid of Doom, and we don't have to do that anymore. We can kind of do all our optional binding in one thing. One pattern I saw... I've started seeing, which I initially recoiled from, is kind of using heavily use of the where clause where we can filter things out. 
and not mm-hmm. in a case where we're just making sure that maybe this type is correct, or something, but actually something like a logic. Like if you have a user, they join on a certain date where the user is past this date. Like that's something I would have mm-hmm. always put in like an if statement. Um, do you have an opinion on if that's appropriate for a where or does it matter? That's a good question. I would probably just put it in a, an if statement um, rather than using a where, but I honestly, I haven't used where that much, if at all. So I'm not sure what, where the value is in where. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's valuable if the type, you want to check a type or something. If you're trying to get something and you want to make sure the type is correct before you move on, mm-hmm. and it seems to make sense. Right. But I've seen people using yeah, the where, sense. where it would be like an if. And I don't know if I would just be old and grouchy because that's the way I've always done it, but mm-hmm. you never know. <laughs> Yeah, and like something like checking the type, that's something you have to do, like you have to cast to types if you want to do anything useful anyway. So like I usually use them like in the if statement and do the optional cast. And then, you know, if it's okay, if we were able to get this data and it's the type we wanted, um, then continue on to the if block. That makes sense. So what parts of JSON parsing are we are we missing? What have we talked about? Well, one of the things that I think is nice to do as well as you're parsing JSON is to use type alias, um, because when you have an array of dictionaries, especially, you get these double square brackets. And I think that's a little bit confusing to look at. So what I like to do as I'm parsing JSON is to define a type maybe called JSON dictionary that is, you know, a dictionary of, of string in any object. And that makes it a lot easier for me to see, okay, this is a dictionary or this has square brackets around it. Therefore, it's an array of JSON dictionaries. Okay, yeah, definitely. The type alias is something that I've come around to more after talking with people, but initially I was pretty opposed to because I, I, every time I run across a type alias, I'm like, what is that thing? I right. gave it a name, but yeah. like, I had, now I had to look it up. Okay, it's, oh, it's a tuple. Oh, it's something. Oh, it's an array right. or an array, but mm-hmm. they're valuable in, in certain cases. Right. I think if they improve readability and if hopefully if they're named well, they're easy enough to understand. And for me, like using the JSON dictionary type alias is something I just do all the time. So, you know, maybe if it's something that's that's done frequently, then it's easier to like just know that that this is that type. Yeah, definitely. If it's something that you use a lot, you can definitely don't repeat yourself and right. clean things up with a type alias. I think it's like anything you can overuse. You can overuse it and make your code hard to read, but when you use it in the right way and judiciously, it it can make your code easier to read. I've been using type aliases here and there in Swift, and I, I actually use type defs in Objective C sometimes, particularly for blocks where you have a block one and they're really verbose, and you want to just a, a short descriptive name for a block type. Mm-hmm. You touch on this a little bit in the book, but uh, how does writing your JSON parsing code sort of fit into overall app architecture? Should you just put all your JSON parsing code in your in your view controller? <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> um, Second takeaway of the show. <laughs> yeah. Should we yeah. put it in a big pile of mess with the rest of big pile of mess? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's something that, that we discuss in the book too. And 
yeah, the JSON parsing code definitely doesn't go in a view controller. Like most things, it doesn't go in a view controller. So what I normally do is to put the JSON parsing code into maybe just a generic like JSON parser class or sometimes more specific like a repositories parser class or users parser class or something like that. So it's out of the view controller, which then makes it easier to test because view controllers are just really hard to test. And then, yeah, like having it outside of the view controller in its own class makes it easy to pass in some input, get some output, and verify the results. So with that, what do your models look like? If you have a user, or do you have the mapping inside the user, the structure class, or is that done elsewhere? So usually I would do the mapping like inside of a user's parser or, or something along those lines. I've seen it done inside of the model class and I'm okay with it. It's just generally not the approach that I take, but I'm, I guess I have done it that way in the past sometimes, especially when then I want to be able to return the user as a dictionary so I can then send up the data. You know, if I'm going to do a post to the back end, um, send the user data up in a dictionary. So I guess it really depends. And I don't favor one approach all that much over the other. But like I said, just usually I use the like a parser to do that. Okay, that makes sense. So, I mean, I'll often create up like a builder class or a parser class. And I think I'm being overly formal sometimes, but I think mm-hmm. it's a, a solid pattern. I've never really right. had any trouble with it. Right. Oh, uh, one of the other things that the book covers um, that I think is important is to figure out how you want to handle arrays and and nil inside of those arrays. So sometimes if I make a request for repositories and and one of them has bad data in it and therefore I can't create a repository object out of it, uh, what do I do about that? Should the array of repositories contain the nil? Should it not be there? Things like that. So what I like to do in those situations is to use flat map to parse each repository kind of individually in in a parse repository method. And then flat map will iterate over the entire array and then remove all of those nil values from it. Um, So that's something that I found uh, really useful as well. Very cool. Oh, uh, another question I had. So if you're parsing JSON, one of the trickier things that we have to do in people have different approaches, is how do you handle like nested data? Do you have an approach that you use for that? Yeah, so what I would normally do is then create... So, so for example, if a, rep- a repository has a user inside of it, like how do I create the user? Is that the question? Yeah, well, you have a user and linked is the user's pet. So you have a pet object mm. inside the user. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would kind of traverse that and then each time call, you know, parse user to get the the user and maybe parse pet to get the pet out of there and then set that on the user and then set the user on the repository. So I don't... You you have a separate method to get the data from the user, pass it into a separate method that would parse the the pet. Right. So, So basically each time I'm taking the dictionary that I get from the JSON, so there's a user dictionary in the JSON, and then passing that into its own, you know, parse user method, for example. And that parse user method takes the dictionary and then transforms it into a user model object. And similarly for the pet. Are there good uh, resources out there for people who want to kind of go into this topic? 
Yeah. So I've written a couple of posts on my blog. There are tons of articles on the internet about this topic. And so there's a book on it too. There's a book as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I wrote, wrote the book. And then in addition to the book, there are other, what I called them editions of the book. So you can get just the book or you can get the book plus some videos plus sample code. Um, And then on top of that, if you want a one-on-one consultation with me. Um, there's an edition of the book for that as well. So a variety of ways to get the information you need from free to the upper tier premium packages. All right. Well, should we get to picks? Be a short one this week. Sounds good to me. All right. Cool. Andrew, why don't you start us off with picks? Sure. I've got three picks. Um, my first pick is it's actually a little app. It's open source. It's, um, Super simple, uh, and it's called Play Now. A couple things about it: the the whole point of the app is it's uh, you run the app, and all it does is creates a new playground in a temporary folder for you, and opens it in Xcode, uh, a new Swift playground. So a lot of times, I'm you know I'm working on something, or I'm talking to somebody about Swift, and I just want to try something out really quick. I have this app in my apps folder. I can launch it with Spotlight or like with a launcher, and so in just a second, with a few keystrokes, I can have a new playground open in Xcode, and that's kind of cool to be able to type out ideas. Um, one interesting thing about it is that it's, it, it, it is a Mac app, but it, what it really is, is a, is a little Ruby script that's, um, p- packaged up in such a way that it will run as a Mac app. So that's kind of cool. Then my next pick is Vim Adventures. And this is, I, I, I don't know, a month or two ago, I decided I really kind of wanted to learn how to use Vim. And I, found this game called Vim Adventures that I think is pretty popular, but it's sort of like an old Zelda type game where you, uh, kind of an adventure game, but it teaches you Vim as you go because you have to use Vim commands to navigate and to do text editing to get, you know, past obstacles and solve puzzles and whatever. And uh, I think it's really well done and, and it's fun to play and you also learn something. And then my last pick is, uh, Mondo, the company Mondo. They make all kinds of stuff. They make toys, posters, uh, they have original art, clothes, and then they have a few years ago started doing um, reissues on vinyl of music, especially soundtracks, and they just do a really good job with their stuff. In particular, when they reissue a soundtrack, they have uh, artists do custom album artwork, and they've gotten really good artists to do really cool artwork. Today, they put out a re-release of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan soundtrack on vinyl, and it's um, well worth checking out. So that's Mondo, and those are my picks. Very nice. Jane, what are your picks? Okay, I don't have so much of a pick. as more of a life hack. Chuck, you mentioned you were making some changes this year, trying to get into shape, and I just wanted to share to the users, the listeners, sorry, some things that helped me out, like in my 20s, kind of early to mid-20s, I was about 40 pounds heavier than I am right now and you know, had trouble losing the weight. Um, turns out the beer and White Castle diet was not the right thing for weight loss. But anyway, uh, one thing that I always had trouble with is like getting hungry. Like you eat how people say you're supposed to eat and, you know, okay, I had a decent breakfast. And now it's 11 o'clock and I'm hungry again. Um, so I just had a life hack. I, I always have like a healthy snack around. And for me, if I had to go somewhere, I've got an apple you know, some nuts or something, because if you're hungry, you know, a bag of carrots, not going to happen. It's not going to work for me. But, you know, having an apple or something, just something I can munch on, because I would get hungry an hour or two after I eat. That's just how it works. And and if you don't do that, then you end up getting hungry. And then all of a sudden, Joe from accounting brings over a bunch of donuts, and there you go. And all your willpower is gone. So uh, it helps you uh, keep on track, because one thing I've learned is, like, 
if you're using your willpower all the time, it's not going to last. You know, it's January, you're cranking it out. It's going great. February comes by, maybe you have a Super Bowl party, you go a little nuts. Then the Girl Scouts show up, and then you're done. It's all over. But uh, my hack was just having healthy snacks on hand. If you don't like apples, try something else. It's uh, winter right now, so citrus is in season. You can get some good uh, oranges and stuff like that. But that's something that helped me out a lot. So that's my pick for today. Awesome. Yeah, those Girl Scouts, they sabotage my diet every year. It's a plot. <laughs> it is a plot. All right. I've got a couple of picks here. The first one is one that I've been using for a while. I don't actually know if this works on iOS. So if it doesn't, I'm real sorry. But uh, I've been using honeybadger.io to track errors. And uh, I know it works really well for Ruby on Rails. And uh, I wouldn't be shocked if they have an API that you can, you can hook into for that. Um, another app that I've been using for a while to track a lot of this stuff is New Relic, and they definitely have iOS APIs. In fact, we had them on the show, I think it was last year or the year before. So uh, anyway, uh, you can definitely check those out. Those are both picks. New Relic does a little bit more on the side of performance monitoring and things like that, as well as the error tracking. So uh, it's a pretty nice tool for just tracking down where some of the bottlenecks are in your app. Josh, what picks do you have? So my first pick is called MVVM is Exceptionally Okay. And this is an article by Ash Furrow. And in it, he addresses the other articles that have popped up recently in the iOS community about how MVVM is not good and it causes other problems. Um, maybe some people even say that it causes more problems than it solves. I'm with Ash. I think MVVM is exceptionally okay. And... I think the concern that a lot of people have is that MVVM just results in moving a bunch of code out of a view controller and into a view model. And while I think that's a good step in the right direction, and as Ash says in his post, that's, a, that's just a step in the right direction. It makes it then easier to extract some of the code out of the view model and put it into other classes, maybe in a JSON parser class or in an API client class or something like that. And one of the things that I really like that he says in the article is that he would rather have a 50-line view controller and a 400-line view model than just a 450-line view controller. And I'm totally with him there because you can actually test a view model, whereas view controllers are notoriously hard to test. And so this is an approach I follow in a lot of the apps I build, most of the apps I build. And so I think this is a good article explaining kind of what the benefits are and, and why it's good. This leads in then to my second pick, because in the expanded edition of Parsing JSON and Swift, there's some sample code for an app that parses JSON and Swift. So you can see kind of how to do it in your app. So there's sample code that uses the MVVM pattern in the expanded edition of Parsing JSON and Swift. So for my second pick, I'm not picking my book, but I wanted to offer a coupon code for 10% off of the book. So if you use the code iFreaks, you can get 10% off of any package of the book. And like I said, the expanded edition has the sample code with the, that uses the MVVM pattern. So that's it. Awesome. Um, you kind of mentioned the book, but uh, if people want to follow up, see what else you're up to. I know we had you on before and you teach some Mm -hmm. uh, how to build iOS apps, courses and stuff. How do people find out about that stuff? Mostly through my website, roadfiresoftware.com is where I am. I'm also on Twitter at JT Brown. Uh, those are probably the best ways to find out what I'm up to. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Thank you for coming, Josh. And thanks to our other panelists. Yeah, we'll thank you. And uh, catch you all next week. 
Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. 